Just as a disclaimer, we want you to know that some of the movies that we will be reviewing were shot in a different time and era where people of race and sex were not treated equally. We understand this and hope you do too. The movies or anything that happened on the sets are not the views of this podcast or what this show is intended to be all about. Exactly. And we want to give due diligence in presenting the movie and not the views of the cast or directors or anyone involved. But we also feel it's necessary to let the audience know some of the background information to get a feel for what was happening at the time of shooting the film. Again, we hope you understand that we do not agree with everything that went on and we just want to give out the information. And with that being said, hope you enjoy the show. Welcome back. We're heading straight into Superman Part 2. That way we can just jump right in, no extra stuff. (laughs) (laughs) 11.5. Marlon Brando reputedly suggested suggested his cameo role as Jor-El be done by him in voice over only, with the character's image on screen being a glowing, levitating, green bagel. Richard Donner met Brando. The actor proposed that he played Jor-El not as a green suitcase, but as a bagel. <laughs> Brando reasoned that no one knows what the people of Krypton look like, but that Jor-El would know what people on Earth look like and would therefore make his son look human so he could blend in. Tom McKenzie even recalled that at one point, Brando pitched the idea that maybe Kryptonians do not even talk. They simply make electronic sounds that are transmitted through subtitles. Donna refused these suggestions. They turned out to be a ruse that Brando used to test Richard. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. This was the first movie to make use of the new Dolby Stereo 70mm split stereo sounds. Stereo sounds. Nice. Surround. Aaron Smolinski, who played the infant Kal-El, would later appear uncredited in Superman 3 as a little boy waiting outside a photo booth while Clark Kent is changing into Superman. He also played a communication officer in Man of Steel in 2013. Oh, Nice. The film surpassed Giant in 1956 to become the highest grossing film in Warner Brothers history up to that time. It has since been surpassed. William Friedkin and Sam Peckinpah were offered the chance to direct this film. Friedkin turned down the offer outright. Peckinpah dropped out of the running while he produced a gun or when he produced a gun during a meeting with Ilya Salkin. Oh man. Wow. Here you go. This this some of these actors here. Here's actors, numerous actors were considered for the part of Superman or and Clark Kent. Are you ready for these? First one, Muhammad Ali. I was like, I fly like a butterfly. (laughs) Uh, Warren Beatty, John Beck, Charles Bronson, James Caan, Sam Elliott, Dustin Hoffman, Burt Reynolds, Chris Christopherson, Nick Nolte, Al Pacino, Robert Redford, Arnold Schwarzenegger, (laughs) Ryan O'Neill, Jeff Bridges, Jan Michael Vincent, David Soule, Robert Wagner, Christopher Walken, John Voight, and Elton John. <laughs> oh my gosh, Christopher Walken, Elton John, like just all of them. I'm just Rocket like, man. like I'm just, I'm just thinking of like some of the crazy, just because they have those like really, you know, uh, 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 iconic, you know, voices that just 
are not what you have in mind when you think of Superman, right? <laughs> uh, I'm when Superman, when Beatty and <laughs> when Beatty and Redford turned down the role, Nolte and Voigt became the front runners. The unknowns tested for the role, including Elias Hawkins' wife's dentist. His screen test is the supplemental section of the DVD. Eventually, the Salkins are cast Christopher Reeve, whose only previous credits were a film and a television soap opera. Hmm. It's not often you get upgraded from a soap to a movie right. and then make it. You know? It's hard there to get are, out of soaps once you're there. There are some behind-the-scenes connections between this film and Star Wars Episode uh, for A New Hope in 1977. And here they are. The Kryptonian costumes were made of scotch light, a material used to make movie screens and reflective clothing. It was also used for the lightsaber blades in the Star Wars franchise and as a lettering on expressway signs. Hmm. Carrie Fisher was considered for the role of Lois Lane. I can see that. George Lucas turned down the chance to direct in favor of Star Wars Episode Four: A New Hope in 1977. And let's be glad he did because we got Star Wars. Yeah, but I wonder how he would have done a Superman. You know what I mean? He Probably just did. as well. Yeah. Richard Lester agreed to work on this film because the Salkins still owed him money for working on The Three Musketeers in 1973 and The Four Musketeers, Milady's wow. Revenge, in 1974. When the young Clark Kent races uh, the train, he is said to be 18 years old, while Lois Lane, who is inside the train, appears to be considerably younger. Margaret Kidder, who played the adult Lois, was four years older than Christopher Reeve, who played the adult Clark Kent. This can easily be explained from the comic book source material, where Superman has been shown to have a slower metabolism and ages much slower than humans. This is either to, to him not being human at all, or from the abilities given to him by Earth's yellow sun. Hmm. Very so, interesting. The film of the black and white sequence that opens the movie is shown in reverse. This sequence was filmed stating with a close-up of the Daily Planet panel, followed by a zoom-out. Then the child's hand turns uh, each page left to right, then closes the cover. As the child turns each page and then closes the cover, notice that the corners fold in the opposite directions of how they should fold. Hmm. Nice. Dedicated with love and respect to the memory of director of photography Jeffrey Unsworth, who had died before the Superman premiere. At one point, it was planned that the film would end with a giant hologram of Superman flying out into the theaters. Oh, can you imagine? Right. That'd be awesome. That'd be, that would be great. Uh, the producer wanted Joan Crawford for the role of Ma Kent. Unfortunately, Crawford was too ill to take the part and died shortly before production began. Mm. Christopher Reeve was actually a qualified hang glider pilot, which is why he was such a natural when it came to flying the flying scenes. Several scenes were shot for the movie, but were not used in the theatrical version. Among them are extended dialogue scenes between Jor-El and his fellow Kryptonians, a scene of baby Kal-El's space pod flying past the Phantom Zone trapped villains, which would be cool, that's cool, a scene of a child Lois Lane seeing Clark Kent's running extremely fast from a train window, a scene in which Ma Kent tries to wake up a still-sleeping Clark Kent, Additional dialogue between Superman and Jor-El in the Fortress of Solitude. A scene in which Superman is pelted with bullets, fire, and ice as he approaches Luther's hideout. A scene in which Otis has to feed Luther's baby, some type of animal or monster we never see on screen. And a scene where Luther attempts to feed Miss Tessmacher to those same babies after she sets Superman free. Although not used in the theatrical cut, most of these scenes were, were worked into the extended DVD versions. All of the scenes, used in the extended version or not, can be found in the 4-disc DVD special edition of the film. James Brolin. Hmm. You know who James Brolin is? Yeah. What's he play? I Like, once again, I, I know the actor. I know the face. I just... Is that Josh Brolin's dad? Thanos' dad, maybe? Brother? Is he? I don't know. Huh. Uh, Lyle Wagner and Perry King all auditioned for the parts of Superman. Around the same time, Wagner was acting as Steve Trevor on Wonder Woman, which also produced by Warner Brothers. 
Yugoslav front projection specialist Zoran Perisic invented a new special effects system called the Zoptic process that allowed uh, matte working of a flying crystal reef to be placed in relation to background processes, which would then focus in and out. Marlon Brando hoped to use some of his salary for a proposed 13-part Roots uh, style miniseries on Native Americans in the United States. The Bill Haley, Bill Haley song "Rock Around the Clock" is heard on a car radio just before Glenn's Ford final scene. Ford starred in Blackboard Jungle in 1955, the film that helped launch the rock and roll era by popularizing Rock Around the Clock. Brandon Ruth and Christopher Reeve were 26 years old when their first Superman films were released. Hmm. The search for an actor to play Superman began in 1975 and ended with a press announcement on February 23, 1977, just 35 days before filming was due to begin. Christopher Reeve, Superman, does not appear on screen until 48 minutes into the film. However, his voice is heard in the Smallville scenes as he dubbed Jeff Dees. Gene Hackman, who plays principal villain Lex Luthor, is not fully seen until just over an hour into the film. So once again... Yeah. We're, we're not seeing you know a major player in the movie not appear until later. Right. Will Goldman was approached to write the screenplay, as was Lee Brackett. Ilya Salkine hired Alfred Bester, but Alexander Salkine didn't think he was famous enough, so he hired Mario Puzo instead on a $600,000 salary. Richard Donner had tensions with the Salkins and Pierre Springler concerning the escalating production budget and the shooting schedule. Creative consultant Tom Mackowitz reflected Donner never got a budget or a schedule. He was constantly told he was way over schedule and budget. At one point, he said, why don't you just schedule the film for the next two days and then I'll be nine months over. Richard Lester was then brought in as a temporary co-producer to mediate the relationship between Donner and and the Salkins, who were by now refusing to talk to each other. Hmm. With his relationship with Spengler, Donner remarked, at one time, if I'd seen him, I would have killed him. Lester was offered producing credit, but refused going uncredited for his work. It's just, you know, if he never got the budget and all that, how can you blame him? It's also amazing how many movies get made with such grudges within the team. Especially when you you get, uh, uh, obviously, the worst is director v. someone. Um, A difficult one, another difficult one to work with is two actors refuse to be in the same scene. Uh, it's, It's ridiculous. Get this one. Christopher Lee. You know who that is? Yeah had to turn down the role of General Zod. He had just moved to Hollywood as a tax axel and did not want to have to return to England. He is such an interesting dude. Like, I, I cannot wait till we do a movie with Christopher Lee because I want to dive into Christopher Lee because he's worth diving into. <laughs> he's such an interesting man. At the time of its release, this was the sixth highest grossing film of all time. This film had the biggest budget from Warner Brothers at the time of its release. Composer John Williams used the same orchestra that he had used for his themes for the first six Star Wars movies. He used the London Symphony Orchestra, hence his film score sounding like Star Wars Episode Seven, or sorry, for A New Hope in 1977. Richard Donner had a single word pr- printed in big letters on signs sent to every creative department involvement with the film. Verisimilitude. It's a word that refers for being real, not realistic. Yes, there is a difference, but real, explained Donner. It was a constant reminder to ourselves that if we gave into the temptation, we knew there would be a parody uh, would be to parody Superman. We would only be fooling ourselves. The closing titles credited five different sound unit directors. According to Richard Donner, at one point there were seven units filming simultaneously. Oh wow! The original concept of the flying sequence with Superman and Lois Lane was for them to fly around the world, but it was decided to keep the couple in the city. Probably for the best. Yeah, and 
Um, we won't get into that yet. <laughs> uh, Christopher Reeves' wardrobe was handmade by Russian women staying at a local Holiday Inn while they waited a decision regarding requests for asylum. The boat used in the film was commandeered by the police to rescue a would-be suicide victim from the East River. Carrie Fisher, first off, the success of Star Wars Episode Four was considered for the role of Lois Lane. Jeff East, who played the young Clark Kent, had his voice dubbed by Reeve. Although he knew nothing about it at the time, East wasn't happy with the decision, and it was done without his permission. It was some years later that he resolved his differences with Reeve. The word Superman is not heard until one hour and 33 minutes into the film. That makes sense. The film was released in the year of Superman's 40th birthday. Nice. Patrick Wayne was offered the role of Superman, but because of his father, John Wayne's cancer, he dropped out. Makes sense. Larry Hagman was only supposed to be on set for three days, however, because of the unpredictable weather in Calgary, he was there for almost a month. Wow. That's a contrasting difference. Steve McQueen was considered for the lead role. He was ultimately rejected for being out of shape. (laughs) Boy, I'd never get a role. (laughs) Uh, the film was originally scheduled to be released in June 1978, the 40th anniversary of Action Comics uh, 1, which was first introduced to Superman, but the problems during filming pushed the film back by six months. Marlon Brando had it in his contract to complete all of his scenes in just 12 days. <laughs> what? And you know, That's... and you got all that money for 12 days? Right. The film was selected in 2017 for preservation of the National Film Registry by the Library of Congress for being culturally, hist- culturally historically, or aesthetically... Significant. Leading British director Gary or Guy Hamilton, known for being at the helm of several classic Bond films, was originally hired to direct and was scheduled to shoot in Italy. When production moved to England for financial reasons, Hamilton backed out. He was a tax exile, meaning he could only be in England for 30 days out of every year. Interesting. Legend has it that Nick Nolte was offered the part of Superman, but said he'd only take it if they agreed to make Clark Kent a schizophrenic. <laughs> wow. I think somebody needs to tell Nick Nolte that he doesn't have to carry that over into you know, everything. <laughs> In a documentary on the making of the film, Richard Donner recalled how he had written down the first pieces of information he received regarding the film onto the back of a business card. He held on to the card as a souvenir and displays it in the it, it, in the documentary Taking Flight in 2004. Close examination of the card reveals that at one point Nick Nolte was being considered for a role in the film. Have you seen I the just, documentary? No. Watch it. It's good. I just can't believe Nick Nolte was even considered. Oh, I, I mean, know, right? <laughs> the villains at the marina were all stunt performance from Kojak in 1973. The Writers Guild of America gave screenplay credit to Mario Puzo, David Newman, Leslie Newman, and Robert Benton. Many involved with the production, including Richard Donner, credit Tim Meswick with writing much of the final shooting script. Donner gave him a creative consultant credit, which appears after the screenplay credit during the opening titles. First film collaboration between Warner Brothers and DC Comics, since the two companies had come under the same ownership during the early 70s. This was not the first project, however, as Wonder Woman, uh, also produced and distributed through Warner Brothers, was launched in 1975. The film cast includes two Oscar winners, Gene Hagman and Marlon Brando, and six Oscar nominees, Ned Beatty, Jackie Cooper, Terrence Stamp, Susanna York, Valerie Perrine, and Trevor Howard. So they are going for some high-quality people. The film is included on Roger Ebert's Great Movies list. Francis Ford Coppola, John Gillerman, Robert Aldrich, and Norman Jewison were approached to direct, but they were all either already on a, directing on a film or they didn't think it was their type of film. I can respect that. Yeah. In October 2017, decades, decades after the extended television cut last aired, a version uh, with a running time of three hours, this version was prepared by Warner Brothers and released to Blu-ray. 
This version has over 40 minutes of new footage, scene extensions, alternate music cues, and much more screen on time between Lex Luthor, Miss Techmacher, or Tessmacher, and Otis. This version was prepared by the producers who were able to negotiate payment for running time rather than a flat fee, hence their decision to include much, the, uh, much that Richard Donner had cut out of from its theatrical cut. John Voight was lined up to play Superman for a while, but was let go because producers felt he was not right for the role. <laughs> I, I agree. Yeah. Uh, the filmmakers included several Superman in-jokes, the phone booth gag, for instance. A lesser-known example um, was a scene where Otis tries to take Superman's cape. This was a tribute to the 1977 uh, or 72 uh, Jim Croce song, You Don't Mess Around With Jim, which had the line, You Don't Tug On Superman's Cape. <laughs> Faster Than a Speeding Bullet. Uh, when Clark uh, catches the projective fire, fire toward Lois's back. More powerful than a locomotive when Clark, young Clark outruns the train in Smallville. And many years later, as Superman repairs the railroad supporting the weight, finally it refer, uh, referencing the alternate tagline from Ma- Max Fleshner, Superman 94, and able to soar higher than any plane when Superman flies into outer space. The development of the, uh, the best method to show Superman flying was a long period of experimentation. The methods attempted included simply catapulting a dummy into the air, a remote control model airplane painted <laughs> as a character, and simply animated the flying sequence. The producers settled for a combination of forward projection and specially designed zoom lenses that could create the illusion of movement by zooming in on Christopher Reeve while making the forward projection appear to recede. For scenes where Superman has to interact with other people or objects while in flight, Reeve and fellow actors were put into a variety of rigging equipment with careful lighting and photography to hide the equipment. So more really good camera work that just pulls off an effect that was otherwise impossible, but they figured it out, and that's awesome. Shirley MacLaine, Liza Minnelli, Christina Raines, Barbara Streisand, and Natalie Wood were considered for the roles of Lois Lane. <laughs> Jerry Goldsmith. Uh, uh, oh, go ahead. What? Oh, I was just going to say the, the only one like I, I that stood out as far as um, actresses considered for Lois Lane would be Carrie Fisher. I think she would have made a great Lois Lane. Uh, Jerry Goldsmith, who scored The Omen in 1976, was originally set to score this film. Portions of Goldsmith's work from Capricorn 1 in uh, 1977 were used in the teaser trailer. He dropped out over scheduling conflicts, and John Williams was hired. Uh, so, yeah. not only that, John Williams was doing this, he was also doing Star Wars like, yeah. basically at the same time. Pretty much. Wow. Busy man. There were no novelizations or ironically comic book adaptations released for either Superman uh, 1 or Superman 2. This was because Mario Puzo, who wrote the original script, which became the basis of the first two Superman films, had stipulated in his contract that the story could not be adapted in any other form. However, in lieu of novelization based directly on the actual screenplays, two origin, origin, original novels, Last Son of Krypton and Miracle Monday, both written by Elliot S. Magan, were published to coincide with the release of the films. Hmm. That's a shame. The movie inspired the Kinks' 1979 song, Wish I Could Fly Like Superman. That makes sense. <laughs> Throughout the 70s and early 80s, Lex Luthor was portrayed as wearing a super villain costume. Luthor's use of such a costume for the movie was jettisoned as part of the filmmaker's desire for a more realistic-looking approach. It has been alleged that Trevor Howard did not want to act in the film, largely because of his loathing of Marlon Brando, with whom he had clashed while making Mutiny on the Bounty in 1962. He only accepted the role when he learned he would be acting with Harry Andrews, his longtime friend of many years. Howard and Andrews were previously in the long duel, The Charge of the Light Brigade, and Battle of Britain. Because of the nature of blue screens in 1978, the Superman costume had to be turquoise for several flying scenes. Caroline Monroe was offered the role of Ursa, but turned it down to play Naomi in The Spy Who Loved Me, which became her best role. Hmm. Jeff East tore several thigh muscles when performing the stunt of racing alongside the train. Oh, ouch. Oh, terrible. 
Robert Redford was the Salkins' original choice for the lead role. He was offered a large sum but felt he was too famous. Charles Bronson was deemed too earthy. (laughs) (laughs) Too too earthy. (laughs) I mean, I guess that's putting it mildly, you know what I mean? I do like Charles Bronson, though. Uh, This was Trevor Howard's third collaboration with Marlon Brando, the others being Mutiny on the Bounty and Morituri. They had a faintly fraught, uh, fraught working relationship while filming Mutiny. Although not seen in the theatrical release, a scene in which the Council of Elders dispatches a helmeted policeman to Joel's laboratory in an effort to prevent him from leaving Krypton was partially restored from the 2001 director's cut. There was, however, additional footage seen in the expanded 1981 ABC television network broadcast of the film, showing the policeman in the process of teleporting through Kryptonopolis on his way to stop Jor-El, only to be killed when the planet begins to break apart. Mm. The characters of Nan and Eve Taskmaster were not featured in the comics at the time of production and were created by Mario Puzo for this film. They are also featured in Supergirl. Co-screenwriters Robert Benton and David Newman had written the book for the 1966 Broadway musical It's a Bird, It's a Plane, It's Superman, which ran 129 performances. (laughs) When John Williams, the Oscar-winning composer of the Superman soundtrack, was shown the rough cuts of Superman 2 by director Richard Lester, his heart sank. He could no longer commit to the project based on the direction it had taken and because Richard Donner had just been fired... Due to all of this, he had bowed out at this point and refused to compose a score. Ken Thorne, another Oscar-winning composer for Something Funny Happened on the Way to the Forum in 1967, was enlisted at that point and took over the com- composition duties or, for the film or for hmm. the movie. That's sad. Yeah, it is. There are 18 camera operators credited on this film, not counting any of the, of the special effects, map photography, process photography, mo- model units, etc., or aerial units. The costumes worn by Jor-El and others on the planet Krypton were covered with front projection material to create the highly unusual photographic effect shown. The filmmakers came up with the idea while doing tests with the, uh, for the visual effects sequences. New York City doubled for Metropolis while the New York Daily News building served as a location for the offices of the Daily Planet. Brooklyn Heights was also used. Ugh. Harrison Ford auditioned for the role of Clark Kent Superman. Oh, man. But, but then again, he was also on Star Wars. And him and Carrie, can you yeah. imagine him and Carrie Fisher coming over and doing this? <laughs> I know. <laughs> wow. During the Air Force One sequence, a stunt player was injured after he fell from one of the wings. Oh, man. Wow. The theatrical release included an extended conversation between the pilots of Air Force One before the lightning strike, during which they indirectly referred to President Jimmy Carter. Burt Reynolds was a candidate to play Superman, but he deemed too recognizable and not temperamental suited for the role. Hmm. Edward Asner, Martin Balsam, Walter Matthau, Jason Roberts Jr., Lawrence Tierney, and Eli Wallach, who was in The Magnificent Seven, if yep. you remember, were considered for the role of Perry White. Principal photography began in March 1977 and ended in October the following year. Jennifer Jason Lee was considered for the role of Lois Lane, but producer turned down because she was too young. Hmm. Jessica Lange turned down the roles of Lois Lane and Eva Tessmacher. Um... Success of this film largely inspired DC Comics to revamp Superman during the mid-80s. Many elements of this post-Crisis Superman were adopted for the comics for those of the film. This film would later prove an inspiration for later producers of superhero films, especially after the embarrassment of Batman and Robin in 1997, <laughs> which described the campy tone approach to the fantasy genre. By contrast, this film's majestic and respectful approach to the superhero genre would inspire a large number of well-received films that would help establish the genre as a dominant one in mainstream film. It's funny, because that's exactly what I said in the first part of uh, this episode, was before this, campy, very, very campy, and then you get this more serious take on a superhero, an origin story, and a story in general, and uh, it, it really did push... You know, further, it really set the stage for 
a future superhero film and right. movie. Which it, people have always been hesitant, but it, you know it's always those who take the risk and, and go for it. And not it's it's a fifty fifty because some of them hit the mark, hit the nail on the head, and then others just flop, flop. Yeah. Unknown at the time, John Travolta auditioned for the role of Clark Kent Superman. Wow. The Salkins, however, turned him down. Travolta would later star in Greece, which became the highest grossing film of that year. Honestly. He might have been I, can, I can see because he has the look. Or Nick Cage. Like, <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I knew you'd get a kick on that. Much of the cast from the original Superman franchise made appearances in Smallville, the uh, CW's television show, uh, and also the CW's update of Superboy. Uh, Christopher Reeve, Margaret Kidder, Mark McClure, Helen Slater, and Terrence Stamp all made appearances in Smallville. I didn't know Terrence Did Stamp. Did you ever was watch it? Uh, of, oh, yeah. of course I watched uh, it. So he, it's. I liked it, and then it ran too long, if that makes sense. You can right. tell writers were like, ooh, my gosh, we but should make more episodes. But man, and when then, they really man. got into the, uh, you know, how he was struggling with telling, um, what's her name? The I, main, uh, yeah. You know what I'm talking about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, man, Lana. When he was struggling telling Lana, you know, he'd just tell her, man. And that, like, yeah. it was just, just tell you. You broke it. Your, your heart broke for you because you just tell right. her. And by the time he finally does, she was not interested. And CW still nails it on the head as far as their... their Flash their, and Arrow. Um, Arrow's the only one I don't like. Like, it started off really great and then it trailed off for me. But, yeah, The Flash is great. Uh, um, Legends of Tomorrow. Uh, they, they still got it. You know, they're still producing DC shows and, and they're doing pretty decent. Right. Christopher Reeve, Margaret Kidder, Jackie Cooper, and Mark McClure are the only actors to appear on the in the first four Superman films. Of these, McClure was the only one to appear in Supergirl 1984. This was John Stewart's final film before his uh, his death on October 17, 1979, at the age of 81. Hmm. The green remote controlled Dodge can be seen again, all fixed up in the sequel. The model of the Golden State Bridge stood 70 feet long and 20 feet wide. Wow. <sighs> wow. This song, Give a Little Bit, sung by Supertramp, plays on the radio as Lois uh, parks at the gas station. The name of the band is a whimsical reference to the protagonist, as well as its lyrics foreshadow what the hero does later. Arnold Schwarzenegger campaigned for the lead role, but was never offered it. He was convinced that his accent soured the deal. In Terminator Genesis, several scenes from the first Superman film were referenced. The rotating ring used with a time displacement field, a school bus hanging off the edge of the Golden Gate Bridge, and a helicopter falling off the edge of the building where the T-80, a.k.a. Guardian, is in shout or shootout with the T-3000. <laughs> Lois, it is I, Superman! <laughs> I'll be back. <laughs> the large red number nine on the sidewalk that Superman lands in front of while fighting crime is located at 9th West 57th Street in Manhattan, New York City. Upon viewing the footage of Krypton, Warner Brothers decided to distribute not only in the U.S., but also in foreign countries. In Mario Puzo's script, Clark Kent was a television reporter. Also, Jax Ur appeared as one of Zod's henchmen. The novelization for Young Sherlock Holmes in 1905 says a character was a Superman to Holmes. This may be an in-joke to Richard Donner, who directed The Goonies in 1985, for Steven Spielberg, who produced both movies, and Donner directed the first two Superman movies. There is a scene in The Goonies where Sloth reveals a t-shirt with Superman's S on it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's right. That's right. Uh, despite being billed uh, before Margaret Kidder, Phyllis Thaxter, and Terrence Stamp, Glenn Ford only has around three minutes of screen time. This is because the cast are billed alphabetically. In an early draft of the script, one of Lex Luthor's personal quirks is that he likes to chew on Kleenex. <laughs> what? what? That's what it says. Tonight on Strange Eating. <laughs> I hope we got the, what is the puffs, uh, the aloe, uh, aloe vera flavored over there. <laughs> 
In the original script, Lex Luthor had another henchman in addition to Otis named Albert. This character was dropped in subsequent drafts. In January 1977, a former actor from Beverly Hills, Don Voigne, was the dentist to Sky Aubrey, the wife of executive producer Ilya Salkin at the time. Aubrey suggested him to Salkin because she thought he looked like Superman. Taking her advice, he was called for the screen test at Shepperton Studios for the lead role. Despite making a great first impression, he was dropped out in the end because he looked too old and didn't convey the youth, power, and courage of Superman. Hmm. Ilya Salkind entertained the idea of casting Muhammad Ali as Superman. I just... So here's an interesting, uh, and this this isn't for the like the movie. This is just kind of surrounding Superman in general. Um, so there, there was there was a huge like sort of uh, you know geek conversation about uh, since Kryptonians are, are very like sun based, uh, uh, it would actually make sense for them to be darker. So it was just an interesting, like, and I believe at one point uh, there is a, a separate comic line, m- much like Marvel does. Um, alternate universe where uh, Superman is black, so oh, yeah. I, it, it, there is a possibility to have uh, a black Superman in this alternate timeline. So it's just kind of interesting that I didn't even know that they even considered. Uh, I didn't either. Muhammad Ali, exactly yeah. right. Um, and this is actually before that alternate uni- universe version. Right. So obviously, I think it would be impossible back then, right? Even though he was considered, which is interesting. But I, I think now more so. Um, it would definitely be a possibility to show this, like you know, alternate timeline Superman, hey. much like they did Miles Morales in the uh, the animated Spider-Man movie. Hey. And don't forget, you had Shaquille O'Neal <laughs> still. <laughs> uh, Bruce, now Caitlyn Jenner, <laughs> turned on the role of Clark Kent <laughs> to appear in the Village People musical "Can't Stop the Music." Valerie Perrine appears in both films. Man, uh, so would he be Superman or Supergirl? Well, I mean, obviously, back then. Like, yeah. yeah. Can you imagine playing Superman and, and then, then later on playing Supergirl? That'd be wow. I mean, like <laughs> at least you'd nail the sim- sim- uh, the, the similar look. <laughs> and, you know, I mean, more power to you. In the early 1970s, literary agent David Ops suggested to Stanley, uh, Carmen, and Fontiano, the then editors of Marvel and DC Comics, respectively, that they create a Superman versus Spider-Man film. Lee and Fantrell liked the idea, but since the Superman film and the Amazing Spider-Man 77 TV series were already planned, they decided to said to make the idea as a comic book. Yeah. Uh, so we, that would have been the, the 77 yeah. Spider-Man TV show was fantastic. It's actually really interesting because uh, that's always a topic of conversation like are, is there ever going to be we a just Marvel? Had this yeah, exactly. All the way. Uh, uh, so we've had this conversation, and this conversation has had many, many times before. There has been crossovers like in the uh, comic uh, books. Absolutely, there's been many crossovers in the comic books, but there hasn't in. Can you? Cinema. I mean, can you imagine the record breaking that? Like, if you had Justice League versus the Avengers, or something, you know how much. Oh, that'd ah. be so awesome! <laughs> it would be so great. Professional wrestler and model Brooke Adams went by the name uh, names Brooke Testmacher or Miss Testmacher during her tenure with Impact Wrestling, appropriated from the Eva Testmacher character in the first two Superman films. Interesting. So, really quick fun fact on the Marvel DC thing. So, in, in the comics, uh, when it came to Thor's hammer, as everybody knows, you know, only those who were worthy could wield the hammer, right? Um, Superman couldn't wield the hammer. But I think Wonder Woman. But did. Wonder Woman could, um, and that absolutely makes sense because uh, Superman is very much um, 
a boy scout. You know what I mean? He's 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 the epitome of like like he is you know do good everything right. We're we're like you know those who wield Thor's hammer are not only do they uphold sort of like what is good, but they're also warriors. And so where Superman is you know. Uh, basically, you know, the epitome that is everything that is good, uh, he's not a warrior, you know? Um, so uh, I thought that was a really interesting, cool thing. And also just the idea of Wonder Woman wielding the hammer is awesome. <laughs> uh, Margaret Kidder uh, said that she had never read any of the comic books and was largely unfamiliar with Superman. Which is not surprising. That Kidder decided to read mm-hmm. uh, for the role of Lois Lane after reading the script and feeling it had fun elements to it. During screen tests for the role of Superman, the role of Lois Lane was played by Holly Palance. George McDonald, Frazier, was later hired to do some work on the script, but he says he did very little. Hmm. This is the first of two films in which Christopher Reeve plays a character who travels back in time for a woman. He would do the same again in Somewhere in Time in 1980. Have you ever seen that movie? Uh, so, uh, Him and Jane Seymour? I don't think I have. Well, you probably need to check that one. I'll probably need to do an episode on yeah, that. If we cover it, I'll watch it. I think Laura wanted us to cover that for her mom. Okay. So have it. Have her, She should send an email. I, said, I, I told official. her. I said, put it in there. We got a lot to get to. At one point, Paul Newman and Joanne Woodward were offered the roles of Jor-El and Laura, but the British Acting Union were increasingly concerned about the amount of American actors joining the production. <laughs> there was also the reason why an offer to Orson Welles was withdrawn and why the Krypton elders were almost all played by British actors. Hmm. Vic Armstrong's wife, Wendy Leach, was Margot Kidder's stunt, uh, stunt double. Christopher Walken was considered for the role, but he was thought to be wrong for the part, and <laughs> yes, he would be. Phyllis uh, Thaxer was Ilya Salkin's mother-in-law, so that's Ma Kent got yep. it because she's the mother-in-law. Rohan McCullough, Carinthia Car- West, Dana Gillespie, and Marilu Tullo all screen-tested for the role of Ursa. Jeff Corey played Lex Luthor in film screen tests. He had previously played Luke Benson in Superman and the Mole Man in 1951. <laughs> uh, Richard Lester, Peter Yates, John Goldman, and uh, Ronald Neem were considered to direct. Uh, WCI Warner Home Video often put out Dolby Stereo movies as stereo releases to the early 80s lineup uh, era before high stereo would become the norm. It's probably this and Superman 2 were not amongst them and would not have stereo releases until the hi-fi era. Hmm. Second Gene Hackman film composed by John Williams after the Poseidon Adventure, which we're going to cover in 1972. The only only one of the original Superman films starring Christopher Reeves to be either nominated for or win an Oscar. Hmm. Although I think Superman 2 is a far better film. In the credits, there is no ordinary stunt team mentioned. There is three stunt coordinators and seven additional stunt performers mentioned. Gene Hackman was actually playing the piano while singing at the time of filming. He had two grand pianos at his home. On two occasions, Perry White mentioned that he had been in the newspaper business for 40 years. This is a reference to the fact that the film was released 40 years after Superman's debut in 1938. Hmm. Christopher Reeve joined the Church of Scientology for a while, but he said in his autobiography that he became disillusioned with the religion when auditing failed to detect blatant lies he was telling. Oh, man, I, I will say, okay, so uh, I was in line for central casting, which is uh, where you go to, you know, for being an extra background in movies and stuff. And um, there are so many people peddling Scientology out there especially in like anywhere you'll find aspiring actors actors actresses it's it's crazy they hand out these silly pamphlets and stuff and everybody you can just see sort of like the 
oh, here they come. And, like, you're waiting in line and you have – they just catch you at the most vulnerable moment because you're, you're just there to, like, you know, do all your paperwork and get your photo taken and then, you know, hopefully you get a call, right? Uh, so while you're waiting there, that's when they approach you and just, like, just don't make eye contact. Maybe they won't talk to us. <laughs> After Clark runs home and beats Brad's car to the kid farm, he leans on the truck. After they drive off, Paul Kent rises up from behind a nearby tractor. Clark's reaction is surprise. Cal L., son of Jor L. of Krypton, was born Kryptonian, possesses hyper awareness and mechanical theory. He should have been aware of his adoptive father's presence behind the tractor from miles away. That makes sense. Superman tells Lois he's Clark and then erases her memory with a kiss twice in this fashion once in part two and once in part four. Christopher Reeve appeared in Death Trap in 1982 when he was still starring in the Superman franchise. In this movie, he plays Clifford, a gay man. One homophobic critic wrote, Christopher Reeve proves he can really fly around the room in his latest movie, even without his cape. There are rumors about both Christopher Reeve and Marlon Brando being bisexual. Confirmed rumors in Marlon's case, he had affairs with Lawrence Olivier, Richard Pryor, and others. Interesting. Richard Pryor, who never uh, hid the fact that he was bisexual, had an affair with Marlon Brando. This is ironic because Richard plays Gus Gorman, a comedic villain in the Superman franchise, and Marlon plays Jor-El, Superman's father. As a matter of fact, there were rumors about all three male stars of the Superman franchise, Pryor, Brando, and Reeve being bisexual. But whereas Pryor and Brando were confirmed bisexuals, Reeve was allegedly a straight man who had experimented once or twice. Superman never says, up, up, and away, in this version, or this is a job for Superman. Actually, that only happened in the cartoon serial. Even in the 1950s, George Reeves' TV show dropped that stuff. He doesn't use a phone booth in this version either, although he does not, or though he does look at one in one throwaway joke scene. They also add a bit of mythology that was never in the comics, the bit about Superman never lying. Superman lies all the time, both in these movies and in the comics, about <laughs> his secret identity. He even lies in this movie. There is a horror take on the Superman legend, which came out in 2019, called Brightburn. Yep. Which follows the adventures of the evil Superman-type character as he grows up on Earth and terrorizes everyone around him. The filmmakers slyly named the main character Brandon, an obvious reference to Brandon Ruth. Huh. And there's also um, the... Uh, oh, what's the timeline? Uh, when, when Barry Allen changes the future, uh, he saves his mother, and then um, Superman, instead of landing in... Kansas lands in Metropolis, and he actually gets taken by uh, the government, and they keep him housed. And uh, when he finally gets released, um, he's just kind of like, "I'm free," and then like you know disappears, wreaks all kinds of havoc for a bit, and then uh, then eventually comes back and ends up helping him out. But um, it's, it's it's very interesting, sort of uh, how Superman is who he is, especially because particularly his parents. Um, and just, you know, his upbringing and everything. And it, it could have easily gone somewhere else. And, you know, Brightburn shows that. Uh, Flash, that's what it is. Flashpoint. Uh, Flashpoint shows that, too. Yeah. Supergirl was originally going to be a love interest for Superman. In the original treatments for Superman 3, she was unrelated to Superman and became the leading lady and the main romantic interest of the series, a stand-in for Lois, who had just departed. Notably, it is never specifically stated in Supergirl that the two of them are cousins. Jason Roberts was offered the role of Perry White, but even the presence of Marlon Brando and Gene Hagman couldn't convince him to accept the part. Uh, here's some cameos in the film. No Noelle Nell, Lois Lane's mother. Nell played Lois Lane in Superman 1948, Adam Man vs. Superman in 1950, and Adventures of Superman in 1952. She appears when the young Lois sees Clark running extremely fast from the train window. Hmm. I didn't know she played those. 
Uh, Kirk Allen, Lois Lane's father. Allen played Superman in Superman 1948 and Adam Man vs. Superman 1950. He appears when the young uh, Lois sees Clark Kent running extremely fast from a train window. Larry Hagman, the major, uh, after Miss Tessmacher's car accident when Lex Luthor pro- programs the nuclear missile. Uh, some of this trivia here, if you have not seen this movie, is probably going to give away some of the spoilers on the movies. Just heads up. Even though you should have watched it by now. <laughs> <laughs> hey, Terrence, did you watch it? Yeah. <laughs> when? <laughs> not the Not recently, but I have watched it. Uh, That's they, what's important. Uh, when they meet at Lois Lane's penthouse, Lois asks Superman how fast he can fly. He responds that he never timed himself. At the end of the film, when he orbits the Earth to set back time at peak speed, he appears to orbit the Earth 44 times in approximately 10.5 seconds at a diameter of approximately 1.75 times the Earth's diameter. This means at peak speed, he traveled approximately 183,000 miles per second. The speed of light is 186,000 uh, per second. So essentially, Superman was traveling for the speed of light, which is possible Richard Donner's attention extraordinarily faster than a speeding bullet. Yeah. That's a lot of math for somebody. It is. And you know what's even more mind-boggling? Flash is faster. The movie's original. That's one of the Smallvilles I liked. Is with him and the Flash. Oh, I don't know if yeah. it was Smallville. Yeah, I think they it was did it in Smallville. Yeah, where they, they had the race in the most recent um, uh, uh, Flash. Or um, they've done. Uh, I'm sorry, they did Justice, it in the movie Justice yeah. League. Yeah. Uh, the movie's original ending had Superman saving California, reconstructing the San Andreas fall, and then throwing the second missile into space, which cracked the Phantom Zone and released the three supervillains. Superman turning the world around was originally conceived at the ending of Superman 2 to make Lois Lane forget Superman's secret identity. Can we all agree that the Phantom Zone is so much more effective than Arkham Asylum? <laughs> I don't know, man. Uh, I like, love Arkham Asylum. But they always escape from there, so... Exactly. Like, like it... it takes a lot and it's usually a mistake on the outside of the phantom zone like no one really comes out of the phantom zone from in the phantom zone you have to access it from outside and then someone can like slip out but other than that it's either impossible or extremely difficult you know uh but arkham asylum on the other hand it seems like every so often it's just like hey guess who's free again great superman's romance with lois leads him to contradict jor-el's orders to avoid alternate alternating human history then time traveling to save her from dying superman instead takes the advice of jonathan kent his father on earth and i have a question let's throw this out there let's go ahead and throw this out there if he can time travel to save lois lane why couldn't he time travel to save his planet and save all his people i don't think he knows how to get to krypton um because i don't think but i'm just saying you know, if if you went back in time, would he go? Would he, he would become be back, younger? He would be back in time on Earth, and it really depends. He would still be who he is. So, like, I guess it depends. Like, DC very loosely messes with time and so many different ways that they're they're not really following a rule set. So every sort of movie or series that messes with time has a rule set of time travel, or DC doesn't. Uh, so. It, it's really no way to answer that question, right? But one thing is certain that when you go back in time, you're still in the location uh, that you are. So he couldn't go back in time and be at Krypton. He would go back in time and still be on Earth, if that right. makes sense. Yeah, so uh, he wouldn't be able to save Krypton because he's super far away from it. Um, and unless his father left sort of coordinates of where Krypton used to be, uh, he wouldn't know how to get there. But okay, but if he did that before Krypton exploded, would uh, none of the shards be on Earth to damage him anymore? And then you're well, sorry, we're going to no, no, discuss. Yeah, yeah, you yeah, know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. That's I think at that point you're dealing with uh, either a paradox or something else would cause it. Uh, so like he would initially save it, right? But then something else would inevitably make it cause hap- to happen because it's sort of a. a 
uh, time's going to fix itself anyway. So it's like, even if you think you saved it, it turns out something else caused it to begin with. Um, and it was always going to happen. So it's, there's so many different like time. <laughs> and obviously there's other movies we'll probably cover where we right. mess with time again. So yeah. Uh, the Cheerios box is a 1970s design. <laughs> Just for okay. <laughs> the little nice. girl who is audibly slapped by her mother after getting her cat returned by Superman clearly isn't judging by her shadow on the wall of the, her house. When the commentator on the TV is reporting on the missile launch, he says that he is at the launch site at Ground Zero. However, Ground Zero will refer to where the missile is due to land, not where it's launched from. Yep, that is very true. Uh, let's see. The, the little girl on the train that watches Clark run fast appears to be young Lois Lane, where Clark arrives in Metropolis only 12 years later. Lois is a full-grown woman. Uh, yeah, because she have grown from a little girl into a full-grown woman in only 12 years, unless it's very late-hitting puberty or looks very mature for her age. Kryptonians and Earthlings happen to pronounce Krypton two different ways. Hmm. What's the other way? Uh, <laughs> I don't know. Did you watch the movie? It's, like I said, it's been a while. <laughs> so, uh, at the train station, the New Haven engine that masks Otis's entrance to Luther's lair uh, and the one that hits the Detective Harry are the same unit, uh, number board 5048. Superman pulls Lois out of her car and lays her on the ground with her arms pointing down and her clothes are all dirty, yet when he screams in rage and takes off, her right arm is up above by her head and her clothes are clean. When Clark and Lois are leaving the Daily Planet on Clark's first day, he tries to follow Lois in the revolving door, getting his briefcase stuck, so he then goes into the partition behind Lois, but when they come out into the street on the other side, they exit from the same partition. They enter the door separately, but exit together. Hmm. When he is spinning the world backward, the two slots are reversed relative to Superman's direction of flying. When Superman first grabs the wings of Air Force One, his S is backwards, revealing a flip shot. When a staff member lights Perry's uh, white cigar, the lighter immediately vanishes, and the guy he has hands in his pockets in a split second. Lois kicks the mugger with with her left leg, but in the next angle, her right leg is up in the air. In some shots, the Daily Planet building is the tallest one in its neighborhood. In other times, such as the scene with the helicopter, there are several taller buildings nearby. After the earthquake, the Hoover Dam is uh, severely, uh, in several scenes, is breaking up, but when Superman is flying towards the Hoover Dam to save Lois, the dam is in one piece. During Lois and Superman's 8 p.m. flight, it's the dead of night, yet it appears to be early evening, with some sunlight still visible in some scenes near the Statue of Liberty. When Lois and Clark are mugged in the alley, Clark grabs the bullet before it hits Lois. He then pretends to faint and falls against the ground. As he does, his, his glasses fall down on his face and his hat falls off on the, to the ground. They then show a shot of Lois up against the wall and Clark passed out sitting on the ground behind her. If you look just to the right of Lois's skirt, you can see Clark's arm with his hat, um, which he appears to be removing from his head. <laughs> hmm. On the DVD, there is a scene not previous in, in Superman releases where Superman is talking to Jor-El at the fortress. His hair is much longer, and in that scene, uh, in that scene, the, the rest of the movie is the same length as the screen test. After the earthquake, the gap in the railroad tracks is wider than Superman's body, but when he is in place, the gap is much smaller. The Cheerios box that Mrs. Kent pulls from the cupboard on the morning Clark leaves Smallville changes position on the table when she looks out the window. During the Krypton sequence where Jor-El looks at the other elders and says, My friend, I have never been otherwise. This madness is yours. He places his hand on the shoulder, upper arms of the elder, shot over Jor-El's shoulder looking at the elder. When the camera switches to a shot over the elder's shoulders looking at Jor-El, Jor-El's hands are up on the elder's shoulders near his neck. When the point of view switches back to the look at the elder over Jor-El's shoulders again, his hands are back on the elder's shoulders, his upper arms. It's a lot of shoulders. <laughs> Rubbing shoulders. I, yeah, I kind of got lost in all the shoulders. <laughs> <laughs> After Superman turns the world back uh, and forward, he meets Lois trying to start a car. When she looks at him through the window of the car, the glass is dirty and Superman appears blurred. When he looks at her, the glass of the window is clean and Lois appears perfectly visible. (laughs) 
When Superman hands Frisky the cat to the girl, the cat's head faces her right shoulder. In the next shot, for the remainder of the scene, the cat head faces her left shoulder. When the planet Krypton explodes, you can see uh, clearly see folds of the cloth of the ceiling that make up the blank space surrounding the planet. <laughs> Explosions that are supposed to take place in space are photographed from directly underneath, so the sparks fly even in the direction of the camera. After jumping across in front of the moving train, a reflection of the cameraman can be seen in the train windows as Clark runs home. Hmm. Director, director Richard Donner is reflected in the daily planet revolving door when Clark and Lois are leaving just after the swell exchange. During the sequence of Superman's first rescue, police and fire engines are shown responding to a crash scene. Shooting briefly from inside the fire truck, the camera drives past a row of four or five location crew campers. When the gas station explodes, as Lois escapes in her car, we can clearly, uh, clearly see a camera sitting on the back seat. Hoover Dam uh, sits at the head of a long, narrow canyon, which ultimately leads into Lake Mohave and does not have any towns downstream within sight of it. A 500-megaton bomb would do far more than cause California to have massive damage. The largest nuclear weapon ever detonated was only 57 MT and caused damage up to 170 miles away. Yeah. 500 MT would be more than twice the power of the eruption of Krakatoa, the largest explosion in recorded history. Not to mention, you know, of course, the radiation fallout and so many other things right. that come with when a bomb goes off. It's 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 terrible. Actual footage of two Minutemen uh, ICBM's test launch from Vandenberg AFB was used in this movie. Minutemen is not capable of non-ballistic low-altitude cruise flights as seen in this movie. AFB, by the way, is Air Force Base. For, yeah. Well, just little things that right. most people know, some people don't. In the opening sequence where the film dissolved to show the Daily Planet building, the camera tilts up to show the moon, but the view uh, shown is one that is not visible for Earth as it shows a large amount of the moon's far side. The pilot and the crews on Air Force One are all USAF, but are not shown wearing uniforms or shirts or insignia. A little fun fact about just military representation in movies. So anytime you see, you know, whether it be Air Force, Marines, Army, Navy, Coast Guard, there's always something wrong with the uniform when they film. Uh, and that's so the uniform can't be copied accurately. True. In the extended version, when the feds are trailing olds throughout the station, the same extras are visible several times in different shots. When the earthquake starts and uh, cars and buses start crashing on the bridge, you see a 1975 red Trans Am skidding. When the shot pulls away, the car becomes a toy model of the 1960s Corvette Stingray with a huge Firebird decal on the hood to make it look like a Trans Am. <laughs> we see every second of Lois's interview of Superman from her arrival to her his departure. Yet the next day, when Luther sees the article in the Daily Planet, he reads several bits of information that were never mentioned during my interview or during the interview. We clearly see Superman and Audible asking Lois if she is cold during the "Can You Read My Mind" sequence. The scene is edited as a montage. It is possible that they had further conversations about his origins. No known heliport in the real world has ever had electrical cables strung across the helipad as shown on the top of the Daily Planet building. This is a fictional movie, however, as a helicopter accident can happen because the filmmakers say it can. Uh, let's see here. An Air Force One is struck by lightning and her crew apparently panics. The captain instructs one of them, uh, others to inform the ground that the president is aboard. While Air Force One only becomes so when the president is aboard, a notification would not be needed. It is a life or death situation. The crew did not care about the protocol at that moment. Uh, Jor-El wears an alien device with an uncanny resemblance to a Rolex watch on his wrist. <laughs> ah. 
Superman is fast enough to fly around the world seemingly faster than the speed of light to reverse time. He was uh, unable to stop both missiles. Even Superman <laughs> had to deal with the air resistance of the atmosphere, whereas in space there is none. <laughs> so, right. Uh, Major El introduces himself in, in the Fortress of Solitude. He explains that by this time he will have been dead for thousands of Earth years. Yeah, during his teaching during Kahlo's journey to Earth from Krypton, Joel refers to Einstein's theory of relativity, which was formulated until long after the destruction of Krypton. Hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. When Superman meets Lois Lane for his first interview, she inexplicably already knows about and explicitly asks about powers, but had not demonstrated during the previous night's rescues, specifically his vulnerability and X-ray vision. Several times throughout the film, Jor-El points out to Clark Kent Superman that he and Krypton died hundreds of thousands of years in the past. This is presumed that Clark's travel to Earth took place at light speed, or some fraction thereof. This cannot be possible. As Supes is reaching out to grab the missile as it is hurl, uh, to hurl it into space, you can see the scaffolding used for Christopher Reeve to lie on the stick uh, out inside his suit, mounted, molded to fit Christopher Reeve's chest and tummy. When Superman is catching the cat burglar falling down the side of the skyscraper, his cape, also known as the burglar's flashlight, is flat against his body, revealing the tilt camera special effect. During the Superman and Lois Lane flying scene, right after the bird flies by them, you can see the background stars through their bodies. <laughs> When they do the pan shot of the town site just before the cemetery scene on the grain elevators, the logo for the Alberta Wheat Pool is clearly visible on the green green, green elevator. When Superman lands on a street corner to drill himself toward, down towards Loser's Hideout, you can clearly see that the street is not concrete, but a pad that moves when he lands on it. As Superman and Lois Lane flying around Metropolis, a full moon lies to the north of the Big Dipper, an astronomically impossibility. When the Girl Scouts are fleeing the falling Hollywood sign, as the camera pans to a side angle shot, we all see the letters of the sign are on the same sign as they fall forward. In real life, several of the letters are staggered at fairly large intervals as seen in the overhead shots. After the Hoover Dam breaks, sending a wall of water towards the homes, there is a scene where a telephone pole by a dock is springing back and forth by the force of the water, an obvious model. When Clark jumps out of the Daily Planet window on hearing Luther's ultrasound tone and changes into his Superman costume instantaneously on the way down, his legs stay clad in Clark Kent's trousers. <laughs> when Lois faints on the rooftop after Superman flies away, she braces her fall with her right hand. When Superman and Lois Lane go out flying, wires are visible on Lois for a second or two when they take off. When Lex Luthor and Otis are brought to prison at the end of the film, the flaps of Luthor's bald cap are clearly visible on the back of his neck, especially when he tells Otis to shut up. <laughs> there was another vehicle on the highway behind the Kents when Kalel's ship landed on Earth. When the Kents stopped to investigate, the other vehicle was gone. When young Clark throws the green crystal into the distance to form the Fortress of Solitude, the crystal rotates uh, bottom to top but when it is coming towards the camera, but rotates top to bottom uh, on subsequent footage, which is moving away from the camera. When young Clark is running next to the train, his feet are not touching the ground. I noticed that when I watched it. When teenage Clark leaps, the moving tra- leaps through the moving train, the wires can be seen from above. When Superman saves the train by holding up the rail during the earthquake, he knows the railroad tracks do not have tie plates or ballast. Let's see. When Superman is screaming after pulling Lois Lane from the car after she is killed by the landslide falling into the crack of the road, you can see several silver fillings in his teeth, obviously due to the fact that Christopher Reeve himself had them. <laughs> the baby Kal-El is launched from Krypton and his pod shatters the skylight. The falling glass makes the ship uh, sway as if on a string because it is dangling from a string. <laughs> <laughs> At the end of the workday, in the Daily Planet, Clark presses the up button on the elevator and when the door opens, he asks if the lift is going up and an IRA passenger retorts, up, up. Clark then presses the down button. Basically, Clark should have pressed the down button the first time if he was going down. <laughs> 
When Luther reveals his plan for the real estate swindle, he mentions that California will fall into the sea after he hits it with a nuclear missile. The San Andreas Fault is the wrong kind of fault for this to happen. Rather than being a thrust or a normal dip-slip fault in which the two plates move toward... uh, to away from each other, respectively. San Andreas is a strike-slip transform fault while with each plate sliding along each other. The amount of energy required to slide the entire western part of California away from the rest of the North America would be far greater than any natural or man-made source could generate. Another little fun fact about the San Andreas Fault is uh, it's part of a larger um, sort of network of uh, connections of uh, you know one of the big plates and they call it the ring of fire so it's just really dangerous sort of circle uh that you can get earthquakes uh that are really serious and then you also get these uh, there's a lot of uh, volcanoes along the ring of fire and also um and i'm blanking on the name it's been a while since i took geology but uh that you know these underwater volcanoes sort of more or less and you get these um you know really hot pockets that are along the same line so uh anywhere in this ring is just uh, you get this chance of encountering a dangerous earthquake, so it's very I don't, interesting. I don't know why he just ain't calling the rock to stop the San Andreas. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the cable holding Superman while he is carrying Lex Luthor and Otis to the prison is clearly visible uh, as he lands. Right before Miss Tessmacher removes the kryptonite, uh, kryptonite necklace from Superman, it is black. After she tosses it, the kryptonite has turned to green. Hmm. Safety cable attached to the helicopter when it's bouncing on the wedge on during the crash scene on the roof. In the expanded edition, after Superman breaks free of the ice that Luther puts him in, there is an overhead shot of Supes walking across the pipe to go to Lex's door. Underneath the pipe he is walking under, there is a big black space. Before the scene was cut for the theatrical edition, this space would have been filled with a matte painting showing the rest of the silo or space Supes was in looking down. Hmm. So Terrence... We finally made it through that. Let's hear your opinions on the Superman the movie. So obviously, if you're a fan of Superman, you have seen this. If you haven't, go watch it right now. What are you doing? If you haven't, <laughs> if you haven't watched it already, oh my gosh. Um, it's also if you are a comic fan, not even just a uh, even if you're just Marvel or if, you know. Uh, me myself, I like Image comics, Dark Horse comics. People forget about those all the time. Uh, but uh, you know, Superman set the stage for comics in general. Uh, you know, obviously the, uh, the action comics uh, pushed the envelope of what comics are, and you know, creating the superhero. Right um, now, Superman might not be my favorite, but. He's my favorite. <laughs> exactly. So um, he's, he's not my favorite, but I respect his origins and I respect what Superman means to comics and just heroes in general because he is he's the hero. You know, he was the very first. And so uh, it, it this is just taking that and putting it into cinema. Uh, and I think that's fantastic. So uh, if you're a fan of comics or superheroes of uh, any sort, if even if you're uh, newer to superheroes and such and you've watched all like, you know, the Marvel movies and stuff, come back to the past and watch Superman. Uh, it's a really good movie. Right. Yeah. And uh, I'm just going to say it played a big part in my childhood. I used to take my security blanket wrap it around my neck and, you know, and just zoom around the house, you know, acting like yeah. I was Superman, you know what I mean? Because that's how much he meant to me as a kid. I'd have all his little action figures, you know, I loved his movies, I loved his comics. Yeah. Um, and just to see him portray, you know, every kid dreams that they could fly, wants to fly, 
And uh, just to see it portrayed on screen, you know, one of the iconic things that I remember as a kid is at the end of the movie when, you know, he's flying above the earth. Yep. And, and then that pose he does, you know, with the one hand down. Absolutely. And he, he like, yeah. turns upside down and smiles at you, you know, <laughs> because, like, you know, that stuck with me all these years. Fantastic movie. Uh, Superman 2, uh, which we'll, we'll cover at a later date, but it was shot at the same time as this. And just when he fights the three villains, you know, Zod mm-hmm. and, and um, I forget, uh, Ursula and the guy that can't talk. Is one of my favorite scenes um, when they go to the Fortress of Solitude and he reverses the thing, you know, yep. the power. He, he made them lose all their power. And, you know, he kneels before Zod and he grabs yep. that hand and he just crunches his hand and picks him up one handed. You know, it's just, ah, oh, I loved it. Um, but, Zod is my favorite Superman villain, by but the I, way. But Zod I'm just saying, I, I think um, if you ask anybody, uh, pretty much, they're going to say, who's the top three? Uh, if you say name three superheroes, number one's going to be Superman. Yep. Then it's going to, it's going to, it's always going to go Superman, Batman, then probably Spider-Man because yep. those were the first three major ones that had an impact in television. You know what I mean? Yep. Now, now more people are more accustomed to X-Men, uh, the Marvel movies with Iron Man, Captain yep. America. But generally, if you ask three people, uh, Superman, Batman, and, uh, uh Spider-Man, Spider-Man. Yeah. Wonder Woman maybe well, yeah, if, you, if, you, if you're looking at just DC, then the big three is obviously Superman, Batman, Wonder Woman, right? right? Uh, and then obviously following the rest of the Justice League, where like you know the big three for Marvel is you Captain know, America, Captain America, Spider Man, Spider Man, and I would probably go with the Hulk because you know the Hulk was right. very big, and I everybody like else. Uh, it's very interesting what you know the the recent movies have done, which is just uh, really put like B-list, C-list heroes into the spotlight and made them A-list heroes. Because of the movies, they now have you know their own dedicated have comics. Have you ever seen like that, that YouTube fan video of Superman versus the Incredible Hulk where it actually has Christopher Reeve's face on it? Yes, I have actually. Oh, yeah. fantastic. You can find that on YouTube. Watch this. It's definitely a must. It's Watch. really fun. Uh, so that being said, we're coming down to the end of this. Um, you can reach us if you have any questions or comments. The Tragedy of Cinema at gmail.com. Um, you can find us on uh, iTunes, Google Play Music, Stitcher, Spotify, TuneIn, and Podbean. Still waiting on iHeart, as usual. Um, Samuel Farrell has uh, offered to become our moderator for our Facebook page, so I'm kind of excited to see where he takes it. Um, I told him he has free reign, whatever he wants to do. Just remember it's family-friendly yep. just to control what's going on there. Um, so look, be on the lookout for that if you want to join it. Um, also, our next episode we will be recording i don't know when it's going to be yet but uh because my 20th wedding anniversary is next week but we are going to be doing congratulations by the way thank you what we are going to be doing wills where we're going we don't need wills we will be covering (laughs) back to the future which was a fan pick by one of my old friends eric cummings so eric i know you're listening so buddy be ready if you want to come in and sit on this and have any input on this you're more than welcome to come over when we record this or i know you said you don't like the sound of your voice so uh, <laughs> if you just want to come and sit in here and just nod at us you can um or we just do it on our own also i told you guys we'd be talking about time still <laughs> right uh, so make sure you uh, back to the future and then also probably our next uh superhero movie uh, that I'm going to cover is because Terrence has never seen it, and a lot of people I talked to has ne- didn't even know they made one. We're going to be doing. We're going to go back a little bit, and we're going to do the Batman. If you remember the Batman the TV show in 1966, we're going to do Batman the movie with Adam West and Burt Ward. And if you have not seen this, this is iconic because it brought Catwoman, the Riddler, the Joker, and the Penguin. They all teamed up, 
And just to see what Batman and Robin have to go through, yeah, it's got some cheesy parts, but you know what, what oh, part yeah. of I mean, Batman did yeah, have, exactly. you know, like the sh- Batman was shark repellent, you know, yeah, Batman was very camp. Like there was that whole. I did see. I watched this whole episode, so it was the episode where the Batman and Joker have a surf off. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> and and something you'll notice, uh, I'll throw this out there right now that Cesar Romero, who played the Joker, he does yeah. a fantastic job, but he would not shave his mustache. So you see the paint over his yep. face with the mustache still there. <laughs> but that's a good one with the surf off. Oh, you know yeah. what I mean? I love it. Super funny. So um, with that being said, hope you enjoyed the Superman uh, part one and part two. Also, um, if you tell a friend, tell an enemy, tell a frenemy. (laughs) Um, Also, we're looking at some Patreon stuff to see what we can do about furthering the podcast, updating some equipment and stuff. And also the other thing I was going to say, if if you have any questions, uh, make sure you go to iTunes. Leave us a review. The more reviews you get, the broader our audience goes. Um, right now, we're hitting Absolutely, internet. Yeah. Australia is really big for us, um, which we have a listener episode coming up from Australia. I'm trying to get her to come on uh, over the waves because um, I think you guys will like her accent. Uh, but it's big there. Uh, United Kingdom, France, uh, Saudi Arabia, and Canada. So, um, And also the U.S. and coworkers and family and friends. So... Uh, We thank you for listening once again. If you have any questions, feel free to contact us. But until then, until we see you again, I think that's a wrap. And And cut. cut.